Hello and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Jill Rathis. Jill is an expert in dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT, and its application in adolescents and families. She's co-authored several books on the topic, including the DBT Skills Manual for Adolescents, DBT with Suicidal Adolescents, and DBT in Schools. For over 20 years, she was a professor of psychology at Long Island University in Brookville, New York, and is the co-founder and co-director of Cognitive Behavioral Associates in Great Neck, New York. Most recently, Jill and her colleague Alec Miller released an online course with PsychWire entitled DBT Skills with Adolescents and Caregivers. I reached out to Jill to discuss the topic of self-harm, but our conversation ended up tackling the more broad idea of trauma. One thing that particularly stood out to me was the wide variety of motives behind self-harm and the extreme lengths that people will go through to reduce suffering. Most of us have probably seen or heard of someone engaging in the most popular form of self-harm called cutting, but self-harm encompasses a much wider variety of behaviors that people use to cope with emotional pain. In fact, even behaviors generally thought of as healthy forms of coping, like exercise, can be applied in problematic ways. Another thing that stuck with me after our discussion was the importance of not viewing changes that occur in the brain due to trauma as permanent. It seems so easy for trauma victims to conclude that this is just who I am now. And after learning some of the principles behind dialectical behavior therapy, there appears to be a path out of these thought patterns if you're willing to put in the work and accept that the journey will take time. If you're curious about why anyone would consciously choose to harm themselves, our conversation will give you something to think about. Enjoy. All right, today I am here with Dr. Jill Rathis. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the topic of self-harm. And uh, we'll also be discussing uh, Jill's treatment methodology and how it relates to helping individuals with self-harm. So let's just start by uh, giving some examples of of that you might commonly see that relate to self-harm because it strikes me that there are a wide variety of behaviors that fall under this category some that we might be aware of and and some that the average person might not be aware of so could you just talk about some of these examples sure so probably the most obvious type of self-harm that people think of when they think of self-harm is cutting oneself on often the arms, but it can be anywhere on the body, you know, thighs, legs, um, hips, stomach, but most commonly on the arms with some type of sharp implement, usually a razor or a knife. It could be from a pencil sharpener, um, a pencil, uh, even people's fingernails, people will scratch so hard that they'll break the skin. Um, So that's the most common. And then also uh, we have burning oneself, usually with the end of a cigarette or maybe a very hot object. And the other common one is hitting oneself or banging oneself. So hitting oneself in the head is something we commonly see or banging one's head or body against a wall or something hard. Those are, yeah. Are these, are these, arbitrarily sort of stumbled upon do you think or or is there is there some sort of pattern related you know to a s- specific event or something like that no i think how one stumbles on them is somewhat arbitrary it's often learned and imitated from other people there really is a mm-hmm. contagion effect with self harm especially in youth and um so it's what people see other people doing often to cope 
Um, or it, they may try a few random things and it, they come about it and find that one thing feels particularly good. So, you know, one person's uh, pain is another person's pleasure. So one person might find that repeatedly slapping themselves in the head is what does, we can get into the functions of the behavior, but what does it most effectively for them? Um, very often people settle on a particular harm behavior and that's what they do repetitively. Right. Um, but some use a variety of self-harm behaviors. Now, I I would imagine that self-harm is is never found in isolation, right? It, it's It's probably associated with a variety of of psychiatric symptoms um is so could you describe what it, what is the this larger sort of pathology uh that that encompasses self-harm well i want to say that on the one hand i can directly answer that question about what quote-unquote pathology or diagnosis or syndromes go with it on the other hand, I want to say that it kind of is a standalone behavior that can cut across diagnoses, but it really is a proxy for misery and suffering. There's almost always misery and suffering when there's self-harm of various forms of various forms of misery and reasons for it. So you see the pain and the misery and usually not many other better ideas of how to get through it with self-harm, but so it, it does stand alone, but the most common diagnosis it's associated with is borderline personality disorder. Mm. And um, which is really just a set of five out of nine criteria um, that mostly involves for most people, emotion dysregulation, emotional sensitivity, reactivity, and very strong painful emotions that are hard to regulate and control uh, on one's own or without good treatment. So you, emotion dysregulation as part of borderline personality disorder seems to be a key thing. There may be suicidality and hopelessness, anger and other intense emotions like depression and shame and anxiety, interpersonal problems and conflicts a sense of emptiness, uh, identity confusion. And uh, that's kind of the, the gist of, of the disorder. And it is a treatable disorder. Um, and it is characterized by so much emotional pain and suffering kind of flailing around, trying to figure out what to do to manage these painful emotions, as opposed to, uh, it really has a bad rap in the not only in the fields of psychology, psychiatry and mental health, but in the general public. So I want to say it's a disorder of being in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The other the other things we see are major depression, different anxiety disorders, very high intense anxiety. Um, and then there can be just a range of other mood and anxiety disorders or almost any disorder, but mood anxiety and especially borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. But I, but I will say early on, it was more associated with borderline personality disorder. Because there's been such a contagion effect, we see entire friend groups self-harming sometimes in a, in a wow. high school. And it, it, so it's there is sort of a copycat effect, a contagion effect. And it's not that every single one of these kids has self-harm. The other mm -hmm. group it goes with is... Um, people with autism spectrum disorder. That's always been a group known to have some self-harm. And sometimes it can go with borderline personality disorder and depression, sometimes not. Uh, sometimes it, it occurs when people are upset and don't communicate, don't have as many good means of communication. Although many people on the autism spectrum have very good language. Um, but that's another place where traditionally we've seen self-harm. Right. So... I'm curious if you do you have any thoughts as to why there are so many uh, different motivations behind self-harm? I mean, maybe maybe these are saying the same things, but, you know, I've read that, you know, self-harm is uh, it, it can be a distraction from, as you said, suffering. It can in, in some cases 
it can be seen as a form of taking control over a chaotic life. And I've, I've also read it's, it's for some people, it's about punishing themselves. And on the surface, it seems like those are different motives. Uh, but I'm curious as to uh, why do you, why do you think there's so much variability in, in, in what this, um, what the, these behaviors are doing for, for people? Sure. Um, first, can I add a couple of more functions? Yeah. In, in addition to the ones you've mentioned, you mentioned distraction, you mentioned self-punishment. And what was the second one you mentioned? I think control. Was, oh, and control. Yeah. So yeah, in addition to that, and it's related to distract, very much related to distraction, but just the, the negative reinforcement aspect of reducing pain and distress. It's a, often a very quick, very, unfortunately, very effective pain reducer for people in intense distress. Conversely, for people who are feeling numb and a lot of kind of numbness or deadness or emptiness is a very aversive feeling for many people. And when they cut, they feel something and they want to feel it makes them feel something. So it's it helps them feel. For others also, a, another central function for some is it is communication behavior to other people, not in a manipulative sense. I'm not saying that, but in the sense that it, for some people, they feel like no one understands my emotional mm -hmm. pain. When mm -hmm. I have physical scars, I show myself and others that there is real pain, really legitimate scarring and uh, blood and, you know, what the, the effects of self-harming. And it also sometimes scares and upsets people in the environment, whether it's parents, partners, friends, that they either reduce demands or give them what they want, um, whether it's love, attention, or something else. But it has a, a real interpersonal quality, too, that's been found that, that it can be, again, one of the most efficient and effective ways to get what they want from someone else, not with a manipulative intent, only with the intent that I've learned before by trying this randomly that this works. My parents right, it's effective, finally right, yeah. take my pain seriously. My boyfriend is too busy, finally comes over and stays with me. Ah, interesting. Kind of right. Things. Those are other functions. Now so, yeah. the let's so let's get right into the subjective experience of inflicting self-harm. Um, what is the biological reason or the, the benefit internally, right? You mentioned a lot of these external benefits, but, uh, what is that, that experience giving individuals that have gone down this self-harm path? Yeah, I think it, it can vary probably, but I think, uh, yes, for some, there is a release of endorphins. I think uh, for some, there could even be an adrenaline rush, depending mm -hmm. on the way they're doing it, how they're thinking about it, what they're doing. Um, for some, they have an experience of just getting very, very, very focused in a way that actually quiets their mind a little and is relieving. Um, and over time, I think it, it does relate to an oversensitive um, amygdala, a very, you know, reactive amygdala, strong emotions in the brain that feel painful and again, hard to regulate. And it, it can calm down the amygdala, the amygdala mm -hmm. in the moment. And also the hippocampus, which is an emotion center and memory center. Um, and once people have associations with it over time of really working, um, they come to rely on it. So I think those are some of the factors that you're getting at. Yeah. yeah I, 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 as soon as I started doing a little bit of research into self-harm, I immediately thought of this sort of uh, modern uh, sort of self-help industry related to quote unquote, uh, I mean, it's a, I'm not a big fan of the term of, of biohacking or neurohacking where you sort of uh, figure out ways that you can uh, produce dopamine other than the natural ways of producing dopamine or other or adrenaline, as you'd mentioned. Um, I, I, you know, I listened uh, to th this podcast with Andrew Huberman, who's a, a neuroscientist, and he talks about all these ways that we can um, manually 
manually alter these neurotransmitters to create different mood states. And I thought, wow, these self-harm individuals have also figured out this equation in a in a much in a much more unfortunate way. Right. Right. Um absolutely. Um effects on dopamine. Um, and also even um, setting off for some like a, a vagal response that lowers their heart rate and calms them down that way. Um, that seems to be an impact that self-harm has, even though there are many other ways to do all of these things. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, and, and you know, we can still talk about the diversity of responses and in of self-harm and why it's so reinforcing and resistant to change although we can we can change it um but it it really is an efficient way for people they learn even sometimes when i start teaching people many other methods of achieving whatever the function of self-harm is for them other ways of achieving those same ends um self-harm works stronger faster better (laughs) they still, it's their go-to the way, the way some, for some people, it's so hard to stop drugs or alcohol because it has kind of a singularly powerful effect. That's hard to replace with yeah. something that feels as good. And and it's so unfortunate too, because, you know, there are, I mean, ex- hard exercise also releases endorphins and adrenaline and stuff like that which can have uh the sort of uh the the pain killing properties that that perhaps some individuals are seeking when with self-harm um also i you know there's some interesting work uh looking at where they studied uh, acetaminophen or tylenol and found that even these types of painkillers have a similar impact on emotional pain as they do physical pain. So they had people experience social rejection and uh, the acetaminophen, and then they gave them uh, acetaminophen versus a, a placebo and individuals that had Tylenol um, had a reduction in that pain, quote unquote, pain from social rejection. Um, wow. So it, it's, it's kind of interesting uh, and, and unfortunate that, that they've found that, the the harm piece is sort of the their favorite coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, again because it works so strongly and quickly for people. And it has a similar to substances many substances that people come to rely on. It has both a positively reinforcing effect and a negatively reinforcing effect for many and that's doubly hard to change because positively reinforcing means there are parts of it that make them feel better, make them feel good, make them feel something they want to feel or it's positively reinforced by people in their environment and negatively reinforcing because it's relief, it reduces pain. So it reduces an aversive emotional state like getting high does or drinking right. does, binge drinking. So when, when something is both positively reinforcing and negatively reinforcing, adding something positive and reducing pain, it's extra hard because you have to say, look, there's other ways we can get you that positive feeling you're searching for and reduce the pain in an effective way for you too. Now, what role does trauma play in initiating all of this because you know my gut whenever i watch these sort of uh, television shows about uh, strange addictions and stuff like that some of them you know my strange addiction there's there's another one called freaky eaters that is no longer on the air uh, when i'd watch these uh it, it would seem as though you know 95 percent of the time there's a traumatic event that set all of this off um would you say that uh trauma is is extremely common uh, in in individuals that that engage in self-harm? Yeah, and actually um, that's something I could add to the list I was mentioning before of BPD, mood disorders and anxiety disorders. Trauma for sure, well, and trauma is an anxiety disorder, but trauma in particular, I think we're seeing more and more 
that it goes often with um, suicidal behavior and self-harm behavior. People have such common ongoing emotional pain in forms, not only forms like reliving the trauma, but often the brain does get wired somewhat differently, rewired to be more sensitive and reactive, vigilant, reliving distress. Um, and then the quality of relationships can suffer too, because depending on the type of trauma, often it, it chronically impacts people's view, not only of themselves, but of relationships and trust and stability of relationships. So you have so much loss and ongoing pain with untreated trauma. Luckily, we have good ways to treat trauma. Um, and often when we treat trauma within DBT, the type of therapy that I specialize in, um, a psychologist named Melanie Harned has developed um, a, a way of incorporating the trauma treatment prolonged exposure with DBT together um, and found that when people have trauma backgrounds and so many do, who have this emotion dysregulation and self-harm that the, the self-harm and suicidal behavior and thinking does decrease when you treat the trauma within DBT. So mm -hmm. it's important to absolutely assess for trauma and then treat it in people with post-traumatic stress disorder or features of it and with people who want to treat it, people who mm -hmm. say, yes, this trauma is still bothering me so much and impacting my life, it really is important to treat it. Now, you mentioned this idea of reliving the trauma, or I think it's also referred to as traumatic reenactment. Um, from, a, from an outsider, you might think that if someone experienced a trauma at a younger age, that they would be likely to avoid anything related to that trauma in the future. But isn't it the case that sometimes you see this sort of counterintuitive uh, trend where individuals actually seek out the trauma in, in their relationships and things like that? Well, um, yes and no. Um, Freud, for example, had the, the idea that I'm sure you know of called the repetition compulsion, which basically talked about going back to earlier experiences that were the most challenging and painful and that people have the compulsion to repeat those in same, the same way. Um, behavioral and, you know, followed uh, CBT and DBT conceptualizations. And while I wouldn't quite see it that way, I think what happens is people get, um, they, first of all, trauma and even chronic trauma, and the data shows that most people who have had trauma haven't had just one, but have had multiple traumas and multiple types of trauma. So this can make, again, affect the amygdala, the emotion center and the hippocampus with memories and um, make them more emotionally sensitive, vulnerable and reactive, and therefore more filled with depression, anxiety, anger, shame, those strong emotions can, and, and sometimes they haven't learned or because of the trauma, they develop more ineffective relationship patterns too. And so it might look like they're trying or seeking out repetitions of the trauma or the same experience, but it's often that they are really desperately trying to manage their day-to-day -day emotions and pain. And whether they desperately manage it through impulsive, problematic relationship behaviors or porn addictions or the way they spend money or the way they hurt themselves or the way they keep quitting jobs or not working at all or procrastinating there's all or eating ineffectively in, in various ways there's all sorts of ways that people try to manage these emotions ineffectively after trauma so i don't yeah. think we would you know what we would say is what are the precursors to the behavior is it a trauma memory is it just intense emotions and reactivity that they're trying to quell trying to bring down 
for each person, we would try to understand the function of a problematic behavior for that person at that moment, rather than assuming it's repeating a trauma. Even though, yes, you see patterns like, for example, people might have been raped and or abused, and then they're in other relationships where there's maltreatment. But that can be for a variety of reasons rather mm-hmm. than that they want somehow to, to um, seek it out or repeat it, including sometimes traumas like that cost a person so much self-respect right. that they end up in very ineffective relationships with maltreatment. Um, and they might not have a sense that they can do better or a sense of self-efficacy to leave or realize that there's better out there rather than any kind of motivation to hurt themselves again, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, to, by seeking out abusive relationships. I don't think people do that. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, I, th- I think yeah, I think you touched on it as sort of, uh, it's not so much the... Uh, the specific reenactment as it is the trauma leads to you putting yourself into a position to experience or or unhealthy relationships and stuff like that. So I I guess you're right. It's not sort of a reenactment per se. That's right. I wouldn't see it that way. And I would never assume it. I would assess it with each person, with each behavior at each incident um, and see what it is. Mm-hmm. And often we won't find any kind of reenactment desire, It, but people might find themselves stuck in very difficult situations or stuck relying on very ineffective behaviors because they, they don't really know what else to do and they, they right. need to learn more capabilities. And That makes sense. Um, now, let's step back for a second and look at at everyone as at, at behaviors outside of pathology because we know that that people that experience self-harm they, they probably have a, a stigma associated with it i mean we talked about some of the benefits with their close-knit uh with their close-knit family members in terms of it it keeps it keeps them close it keeps them giving them attention if, if they need it um, but there's definitely a stigma if, if associated with, you know, scars of, of self-harm or something like that. Um, but there are tons of behaviors that are socially acceptable for the majority of the population that you could argue also use um, use use uh, are, are designed to deal with emotional pain. Or, or rather use physical pain to deal with emotion regulation. So for example, you know, tattoos, like having lots of tattoos, it's, you know, if you have a, a scar, you need to, from, from cutting, you need to go to a therapist. But if you have tattoos, it's like, cool, ah, those are awesome tattoos, you know, uh, marathon running, right? Where, you know, people do these, these exercise behaviors and their feet are all torn up from, from training from a marathon. And, I think those things are more similar to self-harm than 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 most people probably do. I was wondering if you feel the same way. Yeah, well, I think you're exactly right that there's a continuum like with most things. And we all engage probably in some type of whether it's adaptive behaviors like exercising really hard or taking it too far and exercise or so many other day-to-day behaviors that are considered in the normal range of behaviors can be excessive and can be considered harmful to oneself. And I think you're onto something when you say we often do it to reduce pain, to feel good and reduce pain, to change our emotional state. And the bottom line is nobody likes to feel painful emotions and most people want to feel better emotions. So whether that's going out and drinking a little too much or coming home from the end of a stressful day, like so many people do and take a drink or get high, or whether it's going to the Haagen-Dazs in the freezer and eating a pint or just overeating in general or undereating, or being a workaholic or procrastinating and not doing your work or engaging in any behavior excessively or sort of in a dysregulated manner in order to feel better. You know, we avoid painful emotions. So whatever we can do to get rid of them as quickly as possible 
a lot of us do. And some of us are lucky enough, I guess, to have found socially acceptable ways of doing it or ways that aren't that harmful to ourselves. Uh, so for example, a lot of people will say things like yoga and meditation and cooking healthy foods is my life. I need it. I, I have to have it. And I have to go cycling every morning for mm -hmm. 15 miles and they're not really hurting themselves, but they need it. They need it. And other people either don't have the skills, don't find those things helpful or they just have found other things to be more efficient and more helpful. And usually there's a lot more distress and pain when people go to those self-harm behaviors. Mm -hmm. But the, even the people in pain can learn other ways. They have to really learn them and try them and try them on first size and stay with them to see what works. Yeah. It, it, it also brings up what seems to me to be an interesting question, which is, like where what does it what does it mean to properly process negative emotions right people are always quick to say oh go for a run it's good for your stress and stuff like that and, you know i'm not disputing that but as someone with with your expertise what what does it mean what what should we be doing uh when encountering these like deeper emotional pains Right. That's a great question. So I think, right, something like going for a run, going to the gym, which is what everybody says to everybody, go for a run, you'll feel better, go to the gym, you'll feel better. Um, it, it, It's usually a distraction, first of all, and it's an activity that can have emotion regulating properties by calming us down, releasing endorphins, etc., um, so those things, those kinds of distracting activities or soothing activities are very good for us. But if we have a lot of emotional pain and we only distract and soothe ourselves, we won't get through and process the emotional pain. And ultimately, it'll still be there coming up again and again. So there is another component besides distracting and that starts with really mindfulness of emotions and so much more. Mindfulness of emotions is really just the first step of starting to notice our emotions and notice our emotions as full body responses. So not only, oh, I feel a little anxious right now, but where do I feel it in my body, my heart fluttering, I'm getting a little sweaty, um, tense muscles. Um, and images of anxiety, thoughts of anxiety. So really notice and stay with it and allow the emotion with, and start to allow it in little, little small increments and allow more and more so that we're not learning that, we're not teaching our brain, this is a danger signal and we have to get rid of it immediately. We have to push it away, that we don't have to be phobic of emotions. Emotions, we can sit with our emotions and when we stay with them and allow the sadness, allow shame, allow anxiety, it actually doesn't hurt us the way we fear it will. Um, but then beyond that, it just mindfulness of emotions and starting to sit with them. Ultimately, if there's really strong avoidance with something like an anxiety disorder, or we're always avoiding shame, or we're, we have trauma that tra and all the emotions that go with it that we're avoiding, we have to have exposure to the memories and the emotions and the avoided activities based on the trauma cues. So ideally to get rid of it, really work through it and, and process it, as you say, someone would engage in an exposure-based therapy, behavior therapy, where they're staying with the emotions, they're actually recounting in small titrated amounts, gradually increasing um, they recall the trauma memories, they say them out loud with a therapist, They, as they remember them and kind of feel the emotions of them, they process them with the therapist afterwards, including any new learning, for example, that it wasn't their fault or that they can have intense emotions and that emotions increase and eventually come down. The emotion itself won't drown them like a tidal wave. And then, so, these exposure sessions to the memories, but also to avoided activities, places, people, and situations, as long as they won't really harm them, 
you know, the exposure to all the trauma cues is a key part of the treatment too. So it's mm -hmm. talking about it, processing it, highlighting new learning and exposure to all the avoided trauma cues, people, places, situations, activities that you're avoiding. That's, those are really the components of a, of a complete trauma treatment. Okay. Uh, the, now I, I, hopefully you can disabuse me of this idea because I, I had I had read somewhere that that uh, in that reliving quote unquote reliving trauma in a therapeutic setting is not as beneficial as revisiting it in writing. Um, is there do you know is there any is there any uh, evidence to that? So that that's not exactly accurate. What I would say is that there are different ways to approach this and a therapy called cognitive processing therapy does um, is based on writing a trauma narrative and then getting more familiar with it and really reading it out loud again and again. So that's uh, trauma focused CBT cognitive behavior therapy, but then there's prolonged exposure and prolonged exposure is a different treatment and it has a ton of empirical research supporting it, but there's many roads to Rome. You know, there are different ways to treat things like trauma and depression, but I would say uh, prolonged exposure has the largest evidence base and it does involve what I told you of um, picking the key trauma memories, the key ones, um, spending a few weeks on each one really going over the memory and recording the session and taking it home at home, listening to the trauma, your, yourself talking about the trauma memory, recalling it every day, staying with it, processing it afterwards to figure out what you learned. And then the in vivo, we call it in vivo exposure in real life, also exposing yourself again in a titrated way that goes from easy exposures to moderate to the hardest ones. Um, exposing yourself to the police, people, places, situations, activities mm -hmm. that you've been avoiding often for many years because of the trauma cues and then processing what you learned from approaching things that you avoided. Um, right. So I think I've some, a previous guest had mentioned that the, it's uh, it's it's a little bit similar to how you, you might address a phobia where if you're afraid yes. of water or something like that, you start with the most basic exposure to that idea and and uh, you know you literally picture a photograph of water and then you work your way up to touching some water that's in a glass or something and 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 it's it's over over a long period of time you're training your nervous system to react less and less and less and then you get to the point where you're actually you know standing near a body of water and hopefully getting in uh is there a lot of overlap between that that kind of process for for trauma Yes, and in exactly right in phobias, but really all of the anxiety disorders to treat them behaviorally and effectively and where the data is really is with doing ex these exposure based treatments. Um, so in the trauma one we call when you recall the trauma in the office with your therapist, we call that imaginal exposure because you're you're recounting it and feeling it imaginally in your mind mm -hmm. by telling the story in depth, every part of it, and you tell it in the present tense. But all of the um, all of the anxiety disorders, including simple pho specific phobias, have that exposure component as really mm -hmm. key. And the idea is that you have new learning, so you can approach things. You, you have a kind of new learning that overwrites the older learning that you had, that this is all way too threatening to approach. So instead of leaving, leading such a restricted life, you lead a much broader, fuller mm -hmm. life. Um, and new learning about yourself, relationships and the world and emotions. Okay. You really have and and you and the one important idea with treating trauma is even if pers a person has a lifetime of traumas, you only need to pick a, a top three, usually three or four that were most impactful, because when you start doing the treatment, the new learning and ability to approach everything generalizes across all the traumas. 
mm-hmm. which is the good news. Because if you've had 50 traumas, you can really recount the three most impactful ones and treat it effectively. So we've been dancing around, you know, these different types of, of therapeutic interventions, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, this idea of exposure and how it relates. Um, your specialty is is DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy. Yeah. Um, we talked to, we talked about all these pieces of treatment, including you, you mentioned mindfulness. Um, how specifically does DBT address um, self harm, and and you know what what are what are the goals uh, to intervene when when these individuals are sort of compelled to harm themselves? So it directly addresses self harm. And one of the things about DBT that makes it different from, say, a CBT treatment for depression or anxiety is DBT treats behaviors rather okay. than disorders or diagnoses. It treats behaviors. So it through something called targeting, where if the patient has engaged in a particular troublesome, problematic, or high-risk behavior in the last week, we would target that in therapy in the next session and work. Um, so, and DBT also has a hierarchy of targets. And so the top target always is self-harm or suicidal behavior. Anything that relates to self-injury, self-harm, or planning suicide, thinking about suicide, a suicide attempt, communicating about suicide, that's all considered self um, in the life-threatening behavior category, that's DBT's highest target. And when that, and we we have patients track these and other high-risk or problematic behaviors for them during the week, and we start by reviewing what they've tracked. And when self-harm is there or suicidal behavior is there, we address it in depth in session by getting a very detailed assessment of that incident on, you know, why did you self-harm five o'clock on Tuesday? Let's understand what's happening that led up to that incident. And not only everything that led up to it, but what happened when you did it and what came afterwards? So did you feel better or worse? Did the environment respond um, so that we understand what's maintaining it too? And then we weave in some solutions. We get this whole chain with links of how did you get up to being hurt by your partner to five hours later self-harming and then what happened afterwards and then we go back and find key links on the chain before and after the behavior where by putting in skills or other behavioral strat behavioral or cognitive strategies we could have had a different outcome other than self-harm and we're, we're more likely to get we get commitment from the client to trying some of these new solutions so that we're less likely to go down that same road next time. And, and, yeah. and it's through this, it's this repetitive, pro- it doesn't change everything in one week usually, but mm-hmm. repetitively as the client and therapist get to know the person's common patterns, antecedents, consequences of the self-harm, how it's really functioning for them and, and a lot of trial and error about solutions to put in, um, we can chip away at the behavior and reduce it and start replacing it with other behaviors, as well as reducing one's emotional vulnerability to self-harming in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it seems like a very difficult process. I always, it's, I always like to use the term rewiring. Uh, when I discuss this with my students, some of the you know goals of CBT or things like DBT, where there's sort of, it's always unfortunate that there's there's a default wiring, and you know if it's trauma, it's you've changed the default wiring, and so it's just it's not easy to to undo and rebuild, but it, you know it, it I like to use the term rewiring because it, it it suggests that. You can't just flip flip a switch or give someone hand someone information, or give them something, give them a pill or something like that, and expect them to have a whole new thought pattern. Right, thought um, pattern, yeah. emotional pattern, and behavioral pattern. That's all right. of it. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it is the rewiring and it takes time and repeated behaviors to make those changes, you know, to have those changes stick. So uh, to wrap up, uh, I, I was curious as to are there are there any misconceptions about engaging with someone that that you have in your life uh, that you think that they might be uh, they might be self-harming? Because uh, I, I think, you know, everyone might can picture someone and, and you know, you, you reach out to them or, you know, try to be kind and compassionate. But are there any are there any things that uh, in your experience, people typically get wrong when they approach someone in their life that is uh, self-harming? Yes, many things, actually. First of all, there's a sense that people are being manipulative sometimes, and that that's just such a key myth. Um, manipulative assumes that this is well planned, well thought out, and they have a whole system ready to go to influence people in their environment, um, or that it's just attention seeking. Um, and or that people like the behavior or they like being this way and that they don't want to change. And DBT conceptualizes it completely differently that people are in pain, they're sensitive, reactive, have strong emotions, and that when people either say you're being dramatic or you're being manipulative or just go to the gym, it'll solve your problem, get your mind off it, you'll feel better. That doesn't help. Um, and people tend to invalidate and even pathologize these kinds of people who are self-harming. And so DBT, first of all, teaches... Um, therapists to be extremely validating and take very seriously the emotional pain of clients. We don't validate self-harm behaviors as a good idea, but certainly that the emotions and the urges to escape from pain makes total sense. When we work with adolescents and young adults, we teach parents how to be more validating. They're afraid if I validate the emotion, I'm going to give them the message that we approve of the self-harm. And we teach them that you'll actually help regulate the person's emotions if you validate that they're in pain and they're looking to get out of pain, that that makes sense. So I think it's never using the word manipulative. And it's understanding that these people are in emotional distress and don't know what to do about it, that they have capability deficits. And DBT individual sessions help understand the functions of the behavior for people without assuming anything. And the skills group component of DBT teaches them emotion regulation skills, mindfulness skills, distress tolerance skills, interpersonal effectiveness skills. And then we have for teens, teen and family skills called walking the middle path that teaches them the capabilities to replace self-harm and other maladaptive behaviors and reduce emotional vulnerability through many new skillful means that we want them to get into their repertoire. And when therapists meet as a team in DBT, which we do and talk about the client, we talk about them non-judgmentally and with a lot of empathy Right. for them and for what their families are going through. And finally, one important component is DBT has an outside of session coaching component where people can actually call or page or text their therapist for some outside coaching so that if they're in the middle of life during the week and they have an urge to self-harm, they can call and say, I have the urge to self-harm. I can't think of what to do. The therapist spends five or 10 minutes coaching them using usually skills like distress tolerance and emotion regulation skills that they've learned in skills group to use in the moment, maybe stringing three or four or five of them together until something works. And then call me back in an hour. Let me know how it worked for you. So we have real life coaching in DBT as part of the treatment, understanding that People get dysregulated at nine o'clock at night at home, not one o'clock on a Monday in your office necessarily. Right. So we, we want to teach them capabilities and then help them generalize them. And with teens, we bring in family members too, so that parents learn all the skills and can support them at home and validate them. And just, just calm down, you, you know. Well, thank you so much for being on today. Uh, it, it, it makes me feel like 
uh, even uh, like the most difficult of pathologies and 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 sort of uh, you know negative behavioral loops uh after talking to you it kind of makes me feel like like anyone can have hope uh for these uh breaking these types of patterns uh thank you so much for being on uh jill rathis thank you ryan for having me appreciate it you enjoyed my discussion with Dr. Jill Rathis. After our talk, Jill wanted me to note that while DBT is successfully used to treat self-injury, DBT itself is not a direct trauma treatment, while DBT prolonged exposure is. DBT deals with emotions beyond distracting by helping with emotion regulation, problem solving, and improving relationships which in turn can help reduce painful emotions. In addition to the assessment and targeted solutions generated, skills modules taught in DBT help in reducing self-harm by increasing awareness of urges and distress, improving distress tolerance, helping regulate emotions, and reducing relationship difficulties that might prompt distress. For teens, middle path skills improve parent-teen relationships, and reduce extreme thinking and acting. For more on Jill, visit cbtreatment.org or visit psychwire.com to learn more about her DBT skills course, DBT Skills with Adolescents and Caregivers. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question Why Do We Do That?